Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network, supporting the post-award training and development for Gold PIs. Listening to others and listening to the self. In short, that's what episodes one and two focused on. Real listening, not just waiting for the break in the action of others so that we can have our turn, not just listening to our own inner reality so that we can critique and manage it. Being the cousin and being the auntie are about cultivating an intimate kind of listening, one that brings us closer to the variety, complexity, and beauty that is our intra- and interpersonal reality, and that allows us to lead broadening participation efforts from that foundation. But listening is just the beginning. This episode and the ones to follow explore what leaders do with what they have gained from listening. In this episode, we focus on how we build bridges between ourselves and others, between communities, and between what is true today and what is possible tomorrow. We begin with the act of leaving home and then returning. Here's Corey talking about how he translates his work as an academic to his family. When I speak, you know, at conferences, you know, there's one way that, you know, I present things to people. But if I go out in the community, it's presented in a totally different way, and I'm comfortable in doing that. So a lot of times when I go home, you know, my family wants to know what I'm doing, right? and I've got to be able to explain it to them. Because when I first left, you know, they, they used to ask me if I was working at SeaWorld or if I was off-sailing with Captain Cousteau. And I was like, doing either of those things. My mom gets it pretty close. She says, you're like that guy in the Steinbeck book. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. Close enough. Wendy talked about returning home as well, and extended the notion of translation into education. Much of Wendy's work is about educating her people about the academy, and the academy about indigenous systems of knowledge. On the other side was going back home and coming back as a scientist. And so now you're different. Even though you grew up there, they know you, you're different. And you have to prove to them that you're not different, that you're the same person you have a little bit different knowledge. And we don't say it's more knowledge, it's different. So our traditional knowledge is holistic. So one, one of our native stories might include chemistry, oceanography, atmospheric science. There's all these different components in one story. In the academy, it's broken down into compartments, the chemistry department, the biology department. And so it's fragmented differently to explain to the academy that traditional knowledge is not the same, but equal. It's just told a different way and taught a different way. And on the traditional side, to explain that as well as like, we can't just teach a traditional way of knowing because we live in a Western society and to get that acceptance back. And that took 10 years of work to do that. Because if we teach our kids just from that traditional perspective, when they go off to school, they will not succeed because they will not understand how to compartmentalize these knowledge systems. There are many bridges that must be built to get to the point described by Corey and Wendy. Here, Wendy talks about an early bridge she had to build for herself on the way to her PhD, adjusting to a new environment and learning how to be okay with that difference. I always say that recruiting is actually the easy part. It's retaining. So if you start at at the beginning, it's the environment, the environment that our students come from. So my example would be, I'm from a community of 350 people located on an island in Alaska. I know what eagles sound like. I know what ravens sound like. I know what boats sound like. 
And when I went to school, I moved to Portland, Oregon. The sirens, the cars, the traffic, all the people, they're different noises. They're different environments. And we have to be able to adjust to that. And so that was my first stumbling block was how to be okay with that difference. Because you don't realize that's a stressor to you. And so that was one, my first stumbling block, that it's okay to be in this environment. The second would be knowing how to find the resources and a, a safe space within this new environment to grow as a scientist and to learn. And here she talks about the work she does with students to help them imagine themselves as scientists. Initially, my goal was to, to work with non-natives and bring them to the communities and do geoscience work. And I say there, I failed my students there because I was bringing non-natives so that when my kids went to, I called, I'm their science awa, so I'm their science mother. That's what I tell them. And so when, while I'm there teaching them and encouraging them to go into geoscience, when they get to the academy, what I wanted was to have people who had experienced an indigenous culture. And whether it was my students or other students that were indigenous to understand what came with that student. And I say I failed my students because I started off like that with PIs, non-native PIs and non-native graduate students. And it took me about three or four years to realize these students in, in my tribal community needed native mentors first. Once I brought in those native mentors, the whole project changed. The student's perception of self changed. And we were able to gauge that by asking them to write down three words. Tell me three words to define a scientist. What we found was 75 kids all came up with the same seven words. White, male, lab coat, crazy hair. I can't remember all the other words. (coughs) And that was while I was bringing non-native mentors. When I started bringing native mentors, the words expanded by 19. And it started including some of our core cultural values, respect, native knowledge. So it changed how they saw science. The interesting thing is they started using words to define themselves as as talking about their height, um, talking about the texture of their hair. Some of them had curly hair, some of them had short hair, but those little little words that might be like, having curly hair doesn't make you a scientist or not. But what it did is that it showed us that that student identified as having the possibility of being a scientist now. And that was amazing to see that they started using words to identify their culture and themselves as a scientist that changed how they saw themselves. And so I say I failed them in the beginning, but I figured it out in the end. Corey extends the concept of bridging cultures to the work that is needed in academia to teach the rules of academic culture in order to foster the conditions for success. You know, I got engaged with a faculty member there named Carlos Robles, and, you know, he was one of the few Hispanics who was a marine scientist, and he sort of really pushed me to go to graduate school. So, you know, you're pretty smart, you can do this, and he invested a lot of his own personal time, but he was also very honest and sort of blunt with me in some ways. But, you know, telling me, you know, here are the things you really have to improve. You know, he was really frank, that you're going to be up against extra challenges going out into the scientific workforce. You know, having, you know, a Hispanic male be really forceful with you, that was like not an unusual thing. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll deal with it and take out of it what I really need. But, you know, there were a lot of good lessons there that he was right about, you know, things I needed to do. I need to be a better communicator. You know? I need to be a better writer. You know, there were certain ways I had to present myself. You know, I might come from one culture, but I'm entering a different culture and I have to learn their rules as well. You know, and I sometimes struggle with students on this. 
they want the institution they're going into to adapt to them, which is one part of this effort. But on the flip side, they don't want to adapt to the institution and can't have one without the other. So that's kind of something that he really taught me is that, you know, there's part of you that you take with you, but you also have to learn how to adapt to the environment you're going to be on. There's certain rules that you've got to play by if you're going to be successful. And that was kind of the valuable lesson that I learned from him. In episodes one and two, we primarily heard the voices of those entering STEM as outsiders due to gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and disability. This was not our deliberate design, but rather, we think, a predictable outcome of the experience of marginalization. Anytime we are on the margins of something we care about, we have two choices, turn our back and walk away, or learn to listen and reflect in ever more conscious ways in order to navigate the path from margin toward center. So it was the voices of our leaders who had experience with being on the margins that most clearly spoke to those skills. But it is not enough for leadership to come from these outsider experiences. The bridges that we need must also be built from the spaces of privilege. Here is Grady talking about that kind of bridge. I look like I do and I speak like I do and I travel a lot and those three things clash on a regular basis. You know, hey, there's a bald guy with a beard dressed in a sweater vest. He looks like a professor. I bet he's liberal. And then I open my mouth and, oh, nope, I bet he's not liberal. Uh, he's clearly from the South or somewhere country. And, and so you have people say things around you through their own ignorant comfort, thinking that you're going to agree with them. Over the years, even before I ever considered doing this for reasons other than myself, I learned to talk people down from this, these aggressively sharing moments where they were making assumptions about me. And I got pretty good at those difficult conversations because I was confident about who I was and what I was not. And that's where I, that's what I lacked getting into the DEI work is that I didn't have any comfort or, or confidence talking about what was and was not happening or was and was not good uh, around the country with, with diversity and geosciences. So what do you think gives you the credibility to do diversity work? When people look at you, why do they let you stand in front of them and do it? Sometimes they won't, and I, I can't blame them for that. But in the model, uh, much like we're doing with, with all of these gold projects, in the model where I'm not the one kicking down the door at the large scale for an institution, and I'm not going to be the voice of some sort of you know, diversity student group or something like that, I can be the voice in the small groups or in the all-white or in the all-male or, or whatever, in, in the, you know, the more privileged groups. I can be the voice or the example of what makes a healthy environment. And Suddenly, it's not about being the voice of diversity. It's being the voice of whatever group I'm in at that time. If it's uh, full professors or it's administrators or if it's, you know, whatever, I can be the voice of that group talking about why we need to be good people and stand up citizens and good mentors. And suddenly, I think I, I have a voice there. Grady also talked about how he is a bridge for students who look like him to be able to access knowledge, perspective, and realities that they might not be able to access on their own. A favorite phrase of mine lately is that, you know, fill in the blank with some year. 20-year-old Grady would be so disappointed in me because 20-year-old Grady wouldn't have valued the same things that I value, whether it was working on a diversity project or it was the food that I eat, or whatever. I mean, 20-year-old Grady was an ignorant you know, college redneck, for lack of a more sensitive word. And so I think I'm doing a lot now that I wouldn't have done 5, 10, or 20 years ago. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So 
if 20-year-old Grady wouldn't like you, would 80-year-old Grady like you? I hope he'd be sitting there saying, come on, man, you're almost there. I hope I hope he'd look at me as still being a little slow, a little narrow-minded, a little slow-witted or whatever. I don't know. I hope I'm getting better. I thought you were going to ask, what do I think of 20-year-old Grady? Ah. I can't hold that against him, I don't think, too much. I'm around 20-year-old Grady every day when I go to class. There are lots of 20-year-old guys and some girls, too. I guess they're still guys and girls at age 20, men and women, that don't have a clue what they think or feel about anything, and they're just parroting what they've heard and what they've seen. And I try not to hold that against them. I just try to be a good example. And it, it works. Almost every single week, I have a student come in here and talk about how they're struggling with the way they've seen me and some of my colleagues act and treat different people. And they can't square that with the way their family has taught them over, over the years. And they're like university supposed to do. It's showing them tolerance, expanding their minds. So I'm not so mad at 20-year-old Grady, but boy, I'm, I get awfully embarrassed when I think about it sometimes. So at least part of the strategy is that white students need Grady as a bridge. Hispanic students need Corey. And Native students need Wendy. We sometimes need to recognize someone as one of us, yet different, in order to find our way to new accomplishments and understandings. It turns out that the same is true for scientists. Here's Carolyn talking about her work as Chief Diversity Officer at UCAR. Communicating with scientists about diversity and inclusion is an extremely, it's, it's a pretty unique skill. Um, and I think that my background in uh, astrophysics really helps me to talk the language of scientists and to have those conversations and to talk to them. Because I've been there, I, I've, I've had to, you know, like write grants, I've had to write proposals, I've had to do the uh, similar work to the work they're doing. I do have a pretty good understanding of what it is that they are dealing with. Um, and I think that's really helped. I will say also that the PhD helps in getting respect around here. I get very frustrated about that. It shouldn't do. You know, people who don't have a PhD can perfectly do this job and do it better than me, probably. But the fact that I have a PhD has been depressingly, I'd say depressingly useful, let's put it that way, in actually being successful in the job. I think that what's interesting about diversity and inclusion work is that you usually only get one chance to get it right. And I, I think I said this, you know, I've said this in various places that I don't have the luxury of getting it wrong. And that's not true personally. I mean, personally, I'm going to get it wrong time and time again, because that's just what happens in social justice work, right? We get it wrong. And then, you know, we make it right and we do it right next time. But when I'm talking to a bunch of scientists, this may be the first conversation they've had about this stuff. And there's an enormous amount of responsibility there for getting it right, because they may not come back again. So we use our commonality to be the bridge to help people from our own communities access new spaces. But that, again, is just the beginning. We could have also called this episode Be the Guide, because once we have arrived in a new place, the journey has just begun. Leadership for broadening participation includes the ongoing work of harvesting the benefits of our differences. Here, Carolyn talks about a disciplinary version of this within the academy. I think that scientists are very hierarchical in many ways. I think they respect doctorates. I think they respect doctorates in uh, physical sciences more than they do in humanities or social sciences, which I get extremely frustrated about because I think that's, you know, I think that's incredibly unfair and is very misguided, actually. But it is, it is the truth. When you're working with physical scientists, that's what they respect. Not all of them. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing here, which I should never, ever do. But um, I think a lot of them. 
What I see a lot of is a lack of understanding about what the social sciences really is and does. I think there's a complete lack of appreciation about the amount of rigor that goes into the social sciences. Because it's harder to work with people who change their mind or, you know, answer a questionnaire differently on one day than a different day than if you're looking at a star which just sits there and does the same thing. I mean, it'll evolve, but generally when you look at it one day, it's going to be doing the same thing as it is the next day. Um, And so any fluctuation in that really is about your instrument. It's not about the star changing its mind. (laughs) I think there's um, a lot of misunderstanding about what social sciences is and does. I think there is a lot of belief that social sciences is not a real science, that it is, in fact, some kind of black hole that you kind of make stuff up from, which is not at all true. I will say that social scientists that I've worked with have a better grasp of statistics than any physical scientist I've ever worked with. I think there's an arrogance that comes with physical sciences, for sure. I think there's a lot of people in physical sciences who get told by society that they must be incredibly smart. You know, the number of times that I tell people that I've done, I have a PhD in astrophysics, and they say, oh my God, you must be so unbelievably smart. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, I'm not daft, but at the same time, you know, there are plenty of us who are smart and and do good work, and there are plenty of us who I've met in the social sciences who are just as smart as me. But I think there's that reinforcement from society that people in the physical sciences are smarter because people don't understand the physical sciences a lot of the time. Corey talked about his ongoing work in being a guide to other scientists to help them translate their work into meaningful application and discussion within the everyday world. And so, yeah, there's two worlds out there. I I have some friends, and they can't turn off scientist mode. You know, when they talk to the public, there's a fish up north called the Delta smell. It's a big source of contention because it's a federally endangered species. Fishermen don't like it because of water issues. The farmers don't like it, again, because of water issues. I remember there was this group of agriculture guys, and they're asking about this fish and why they're diverting water. They're like, well, you don't understand. It's a keystone species that serves it. I'm like, oh, God. I was like, stop, stop, stop. I was like, stop, stop, stop. You've lost them already as soon as you said that. You know, so like I, I'm cognizant of that, like who my audience is, you know, where they're coming from. Because, you know, these guys, they, they really don't want the fish. You know, they're worried about their livelihood. You know, they got kids they're trying to put into school. And so you've got to sort of look at their perspective and what is the messaging that they're looking for. It's not going to be the way I want it because I, I run into this a lot with my colleagues. They want to present it their way because that's the only way to present it. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> There's a different way to present this. You got to know your audience. So that's kind of one of the things that I run into a lot. If I'm out in the public eye, I have to understand who I'm talking to. You know, and I like to get to know them. Like, oh, hi, what's your name? Where are you coming from? Why are you here? You know, okay. And then, you know, if they have a question about stuff, that gives me some context. How I structure my answer, you know, and how I verbalize the different issues that are out there. Some of the geoscientists, they were looking at this as a broader impact where they were going to go out and tell the community, this is how it has to be. I'm like, no, 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 that's not how you're doing this. They were going to go into Appalachian communities and I know that this is not going to work at all. They're going to run you out of town if you go in and do this. And the person proposing, you could watch the gear seize in their head because that's the first time I think someone had told them something like this. I'm like, wait, what are you telling me? I'm a scientist. I know what I'm talking about. No, not in this. They, they could care less what your credentials are. If you don't speak to them, you know, at the level they're used to interacting with others in the community, you're done. You're, it's not going to work. Don't assume that because someone hasn't been trained as a scientist, you know, that their form of knowledge isn't equivalent to your form of knowledge. It probably is in, in a lot of ways. You just don't know how yet. If we did a one group, and they were really resistant to having anyone from the community, but they wanted to do an agriculture project dealing with water issues in Central California, and they didn't want to have any of the farmers involved. 
I'm like, this is not going to work. They're not going to want to engage with you. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to believe any of this stuff is working because they had no input on it. And that's a lot of where, you know, I see my background coming in. It's, you have to sort of let these people in, you know, no matter who they are. Finally, we return one more time to Wendy, who told us a story that embodies this concept of being the bridge, what it is and why it's important. I don't look like my family. I don't look like my family at all. In my mind's eye, I do, but I am not brown with black hair and brown eyes. I have green eyes, light skin, and blondish brown hair. So you can imagine the difficulty growing up in a Native community. And so I remember in sixth grade, dancing and singing. And I mean, when I say that, I'm talking about traditionally, the elders going, oh, you dance like a white girl. Oh, you sing like a white girl. Oh, you speak Haida like a white girl. And I quit. I quit doing it because I was so embarrassed. And when I reconnected in 2008 with my culture, I just said, I don't care. Yeah, I don't look the same, but that's okay because I know who I am. At that point, I, I know who I am. And, and I guess part of that as well is uh, before I started this project, I got a very severe illness. I got pancreatitis. And that's when I realized at that time I needed to reconnect. So um, they told me I was going to die and I didn't. And then I realized this is what I need to go back home. And when I went back, uh, I started speaking Hadkil, Haida, and my auntie kept making fun of me. You sound like a white lady. You sound like a white lady. And I was like, that's okay. I'm still speaking it. I'm still learning it. That's fine. I'm still going to go dance and sing because it brought me so much joy. I realized somebody took a picture of me. I, I danced with my eyes closed and I didn't realize I did that. So I was like, oh, okay. So I didn't tell anybody in the community I was getting my PhD and we're not supposed to do that. Talk about ourselves. My family knew, but I didn't talk about that with anybody else. And when I graduated, the tribe had a party for me and all the surrounding communities came over and when they do that, every song they play, they sing, you have to dance to. And I was dancing around the room, which I was happy because I, that to me is just, that's glorious. And my auntie grabbed my arm and she was 91 at the time. And she said, honey, and our elders don't have to apologize to us. We don't expect them to do that. She uh, grabbed my arm and she said, honey, I'm so sorry for picking on you. Please don't quit speaking your hot kill. Don't quit dancing and singing. I didn't realize you had to look different to walk in that world and succeed and bring it back to us. And that was powerful. I lost her six months later. She, she, she passed. That was the greatest graduation gift I had. She gave me this large abalone button to put on my blanket and I wear it next to my heart. I think that I can walk in both worlds. Um, we have to be able to teach our people and I say our people as either in the academy or in our tribal communities, how to walk in each other's world. So if you can't speak a common language, right, of understanding, then you're going to have this lack of diversity because you feel excluded or insecure about trying to do geoscience when you can't understand what the um, academy is telling you. And if the academy can't appeal to that community, you're not going to recruit anybody in that. And I've been able to do both successfully. And to teach a new generation of how to take our culture and transition that into learning in the academy. And I've learned through my own stumbles and, you know, obstacles that I've found. And I try to incorporate that into both teaching non-natives as well as natives how to work together.
Broadening participation isn't just about populating a student body with a wider array of social identities or hiring more diverse faculty so that students might see someone that looks like them. Broadening participation is also about building bridges that make it possible to gain from those differences and learning, often through our stumbling, how to work together. In the next episode, we tackle the fundamental challenge embedded in this quest, the question of identity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation, copyright 2018, Cardia Group LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspect of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Kit Kat Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. Thank you.